being in ketosis, being low carb is a, is great for adaptation, which means it's like you're training and building up adaptation, but it's not necessarily optimal for performance day. Welcome to the Seamland podcast. My name is Seamland and our guest today is Geoffrey Wu. Geoffrey is the founder and executive chair of HVMN, the company that provides exogenous ketones as ketone esters. He also has a degree in computer science from Stanford University. This episode is brought to you by Katsu Training. Katsu bands incorporate blood flow moderation training that trick the body into thinking that it's lifting heavier weights than it actually is. When traditional weightlifting requires you to reach 70 to 80% of your one repetition maximum to stimulate muscle hypertrophy, then Katsu achieve that effect only at 20 to 30%. So it's perfect for treating injuries or use when you don't have access to heavy weights. Research about Katsu bands also shows it lowers blood pressure, speeds up recovery from injuries, releases stem cells, builds muscle, burns fat, and prevents age-related muscle loss. These things are a game changer and I use them almost every day. If you want to try out the Katsu cycle bands, then use the code SEAM for a 10% discount at katsu-global.com. That's katsu-global.com and the 10% code is SEAM, S-I-I-M. All in all, I, I, I cannot complain. It's been... Uh, and, I, and I think I've been able to take a silver lining from it, which is that essentially we've had a forced autophagy of our social calendar <laughs> yeah. because of pandemic. So in, in that way, I think it's been very fun and refreshing to be able to reset my time, reset my calendar to take take control of a, in, in a way that would have been very easy to autopilot from the same from like 2019 to 2020. Mm. Yeah. That's a, I'm, I'm glad that you uh, have made this like realization and yeah, you're, you're so right that there, you can always like find some uh, positive things out of everything. And uh, yeah, like I think more than enough, we may need more of this like cleansing a little bit <laughs> when it comes to like our, I don't know, like responsibilities or projects uh, or even like just our uh, routines. So yeah, you, you can definitely find some uh, good opportunities to kind of hack away some of the things that you don't need and to kind of uh, tighten things up, uh, especially uh, if, if you were to use the same um, analogy of uh, autophagy. Yep. But uh, yeah. like, yeah, I was gonna ask. I was gonna ask. Like a lot of people were like more interested in improving their metabolic health to like strengthen the immune system. But uh, you like specialize in like performance uh, with uh, ketones. Uh, so has there been any like uh, interest uh, for these ketones, especially and just optimizing performance? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that the original research stream was focused both on performance, but also on the medical and therapeutic implications. I, I think that um, if you look at the history of the researchers dating back to George Cahill, who did a lot of the early fasting studies and seeing that ketones were uh, an important fuel substrate during these 40-day or 360-day plus fasts, and then uh, Richard Reach at the NIH looking at some of the, uh, the, the preferential redox uh, uh, ratios in terms of how the coenzyme, coenzymes in the Krebs cycle favors being in ketosis versus uh, glycolysis or, or, or beta oxidation. Um, I, I think there's always been this duality of enhanced performance and, and therapeutic benefit, right? And I think that's kind of an interesting lens from a biohacker's perspective is that I think usually on the biohacking performance side, we take normal people or, or, or fit people trying to enhance them. But medicine is essentially bringing people from deficient states to normal states. But I would say that it's the same vector 
mm. or same direction of effort. So in that sense, it's just the same effort, but from a different starting position. Mm -hmm. um, so within the performance space and ketones, uh, I would say that a lot of the research over the last year has been focused on recovery and also fine tuning protocols in which exogenous ketones actually are most beneficial. Uh, I would say that one of the, I would say the top research group looking at sports physiology and exogenous ketones today is being run out of Belgium. Uh, uh, Professor Peter Hesbel at KU Levon is doing just phenomenal work. And he's published a series of papers showing both additional work on recovery, but also super fascinating data on uh, how to best stack other supplements or other interventions on top of exogenous ketones. So one of the recent papers I thought was very, very interesting was realizing that such a big bolus of ketones actually drops your blood pH, right? Uh, ketones, beta-hydroxybutyric acid is actually an acid. So if you have a lot of ketones all at once and you don't have enough buffer or sodium bicarbonate that you're, that you're, that, you know, that different organs kind of buffer, uh, you can actually lower the pH and that actually inhibits performance, right? Like being in an acidotic state is, uh, is, is, like, is like kind of equivalent to having so much lactic acid production that you have acidity in your blood. So a very similar thing can happen with ketosis. Lactate and ketones have, I think, a very interesting parallel in terms of how they uh, interact both in physiology as well as the historical and uh, uh, kind of the timeline and, and, and how we have better understood both lactate and ketones. Um, but, I, but I think the specific point there was that the, the Hezbollah group showed that if you stack sodium bicarbonate, which is a very common buffer, uh, a base uh, it, 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 as part of a, a, a training protocol or a, a, a use protocol, that balance of buffer plus ketones was shown to be much more efficient and much superior to ketones alone or sodium bicarbonate alone. Mm -hmm. so, I, so I think that's just one interesting data point that shows the fine tuning of how to best apply these exogenous ketones, which are still relatively novel in right. optimal sports performance. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's just like one example of kind of the a very quickly evolving literature in the space. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree that uh, more often than not, people tend to, like, let's say, put these uh, things into different categories, like health and performance are usually kept uh, separately. Uh, but uh, I think that you, you can definitely achieve uh, both if you uh, have it, like, fully optimized and you know what, what you're doing. Uh, so, yeah, like, uh, usually, let's say, being um, healthy would uh, allow you to also perform better. And if you are, let's say, pursuing uh, this, even if it's uh, like moderate performance or like not necessarily high-end performance, then you will see like inevitable improvements in your health and they do walk hand in hand. Because like, although let's say some athletes may not always be the, the healthiest, they're still healthier than the average person and uh, healthier than uh, like the, you know, the standard American diet following uh, individual. 100%. And I think, that's an interesting area to maybe explore a little bit more where I would say that for most of the path on performance, it's very parallel or in line with achieving uh, overall longevity, right? Having lean muscle tissue and not having sarcopenia or cachexia is associated with longevity, right? The more lean muscle mass, the more preventative injury is having a better glucose dump. But at a certain point, performance 
bifurcates from health, right? If you're trying to right. win an Olympic gold medal for a marathon or, or, or some, you know, some very, very intense sport, then there, I think, is a, a stronger argument that there might be a, a difference between, hey, like winning a gold medal and peaking on this specific date, this specific year, and, you know, cutting weight and all, of the, all that stuff. That might not necessarily be optimal for longevity, uh, but I think it's a very, very edge case for uh, everyday people. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, and just usually, you, regular people are not going to uh, take it to the extent uh, or they don't have access to those particular, let's say, resources or these other supplements that, uh, that enable optimal or like supreme performance. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk about you know this ketosis then um, you know a lot of people know what ketosis is uh, on a you know superficial level but um, like w how would you like define it or uh, how would you describe it? Yeah, yeah, happy to just go back to basics. Um, the way I like to think about ketosis is um, I'll, I'll take it from a couple different angles, but simply the definition of ketosis is the presence of ketone bodies in your blood. And that can be measurable through finger stick. And oftentimes that threshold of what's considered nutritional ketosis is 0.5 millimole uh, of ketones. So that's a very quantitative definition of what ketosis is, right? The presence of ketone bodies in your, in your blood. Now, why is this important? Why is this meaningful? Well, I think that's where you, we tap into evolutionary biology and we realize that, uh, life is a storage and utilization of energy, right? That's called metabolism. And there's different ways that metabolism uh, works in terms of starting compounds, right? There's fats, there's carbohydrates, there's proteins as the traditional three macronutrients. These are all, all the things on a food label that have calories and they have calories because they get converted by your cells into ATP, right? And that's why there are macronutrients, things like calcium, vitamin D, vitamin A, they're all important, but they're not calorie containing substances. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're considered micronutrients because they are a part of the Krebs cycle or uh, they, they contribute to the enzymes or different functions of creating ATP, but do not net directly are not the fuel, the calorie containing substance that, that creates ATP. Now, uh, as uh, humans demanded more and more uh, fuel for their big brains, uh, sugar glycolysis was a dominant metabolic pathway. So it's the most primitive metabolic pathway. Uh, you know, yeast, single cell organisms, they can ferment sugar into ATP or uh, as, as respiration evolved, that's converting using oxygen to have a more efficient way to convert uh, glucose into ATP. Uh, but the limiting factor of just glucose metabolism is that our bodies store a limited amount of glucose. Right. And that's in the form of muscle glycogen, liver glycogen. And the brain is in a very preserved state where not a lot of things can cross the blood brain barrier to fuel brain cells. So glucose is definitely one of those substances. But what if we don't eat for 24 hours? What if you run out of our muscle or liver glycogen? Do we just go brain dead? And obviously, I, I know you've done fasting uh, and I've done extended fast. Obviously, we do not die if we do not right. eat for you know, 24 hours. And what's happening is that our bodies evolved a mechanism to convert our very, very large fat stores into a form of energy called ketones. And that process called ketose ketogenesis, I think is the more precise nuanced term, the production 
the generation of ketone bodies themselves. So in, from that lens, ketosis has really evolved as a survival uh, starvation metabolic pathway that enabled humans with our very large brains to survive in, uh, in, in prehistoric times. So uh, I would say that just as we've solved a lot of the things that killed humans in the past, which is famine and starvation, we've almost forgotten about this ancient metabolic pathway that we evolved with that was in critical to our survival. Uh, and, and in that sense, um, likely most Americans and most westernized populations probably never really dip into ketosis because we never deplete our glycogen or glucose reserves. Yeah. And I think that's where what I would say within the last five, 10 years, there's been so much research. I know that you've been uh, one of the leading people talking about it from a biohacking perspective of uh, how do we take advantage of the metabolic benefit and the signaling effects of being ketosis for longevity, for performance. I think that's, and, and that's kind of the state of the art today where uh, ketosis was almost a forgotten ancient prehistoric metabolic pathway. Uh, we never really delved into it because we had a surplus now of food versus a lack of food and we never needed to tap into that survival mode. And now we realize that being in that quote unquote survival mode for, you know, at times or for more extended durations might be useful for a lot of different implications. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say that cherry on top is where, you know, I've, been focusing a lot of my interest is what if you could create synthetic ketones or ketone precursors that directly trigger quote-unquote nutritional ketosis by consuming ketones directly mm -hmm. i think that's been a relatively new area of research where now you can finally study uh ketones directly versus having to force a ketogenic diet and i think that's why we you know when i like to talk about ketosis I like to be very precise about ketosis as the presence of ketone bodies in the blood versus ketogenesis, which right. is your liver actually creating its own ketone bodies from its fat stores. That mm. wasn't relevant 20 years ago because there was no way to exogenously consume ketones. But now that we have exogenous ketones in the form of salts, esters, uh, other different types of molecules, you can actually now have full carbohydrate reserves and, and not be fasted and not eat a ketogenic diet, ketogenic diet but still have ketones in your, in your blood. And right. that unlocks a lot of the performance questions that we're now exploring as well as potential therapeutic applications where, okay, if it's more easily available to tap into ketosis on demand through a consumption process versus a restriction process, what does that open up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good uh, distinction that uh, there's a diff huge difference um well, at least like a physiological difference, uh, getting ketosis exogenously or uh, producing your own ketones, uh, which is a ketogenesis. Um, like, yeah. uh, but, you know, you mentioned that, I, and it is so true that ketosis is like one of the, let's say, in my opinion, it's uh, one of the, like these tools or these abilities that essentially enable humans to survive <laughs> throughout the, like these uh, periods of famine and food shortages and other crises or these uh, stressors. So it's a very like invaluable part of our physiology and we just not really use it in the modern world. And uh, you could say that, that we don't really need to do it because like food is everywhere. But at the same time, like what are the, like, the full implications of like never going into ketosis? Uh, like we don't, 
we, 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 we do see like a trend of this declining health amongst the Western populations. But, uh, you know, what's the main cause of it is like still up to, up to debate. But I would imagine that just being in this constantly overnourished state and never going into ketosis is probably uh, at least plays some uh, role in it. Because like even like uh, babies, uh, they're born in ketosis. So it's uh, essentially like a very uh, vital part of our survival and uh, just uh, growing and evolving as, a, as an organism. Yeah, I think that's a, I think it's a, I, I think, I think you're spot on. I would not disagree with anything you just said there, which is that I think there's definitely some smoke, which implies that ketosis could be a part of the solution, but it's a like nutritional epidemiology is so complicated, right? And I, I don't think we want to overstate or overhype uh, anything, but I, but I think the data for me is personally compelling where it feels like if you look at the killers of Americans, it's cardiovascular disease, uh, cancer, uh, neurological conditions, and, and, and diabetes, obesity, right? And these essentially all have some contribute, contributing cause caused by overconsumption. And if you just look at the American population, 75% of us are overweight, obese. Yeah. One third of us are pre-diabetic. 88% of us are metabolically unhealthy, meaning insulin resistance or some sort of lipid uh, dysfunction. Uh, and I think it's, and all of it is because, in a, and I think a very good argument that a lot of it is because of our daily food choices. And I think we fail to forget how powerful our nutrition choices are because it's something that we have to do multiple times a day, every day of our lives. And that's, that's the 99.9% .9 of us, right? We're just constantly eating stuff. And I think when people think, hey, if you put crap in, you should expect crap out. But right. I, I think for some reason, uh, they think food is different or something, right? It's like, oh, like I can turn that Twinkie into like something like beautiful in my, you know, as a, as a very useful part of my uh, like organs. And it's like, yeah, I, I think there's definitely, you know, some notion of calories a calorie, like there's no magical beauty of like a synthetic protein or a, you know, a, a protein coming from a grass fed cow that lived in a beautiful farm at, at some level. Sure. But then you think about all the other ancillary molecules around it, right? Like, uh, are you, do you want to be add, adding so much process, refined processed seed oils? Do you really want to be adding like refined carbohydrate? just pure glucose, pure dextrose, pure fructose in a way that's never found in nature normally. And I think when you take into consideration just how different the modern food environment is versus our ancestral uh, history, it, 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 I, I think it opens up a lot of people's eyes where, hey, there's definitely some correlation here. We can go into what data is, exists to show more of a causative relationship. But that's definitely made, I think, a lot of us think of a lot more carefully about the power of food, at, at least one, and then two, dictate some of the choices mm -hmm. that, that I think yeah. a lot of us in more of the low-carb, ketogenic uh, realms are, are, are starting to play with and, and really yeah. live. Yeah, I, I can definitely see like a like correlation and potential link uh, between like ketosis and longevity or just the health. But what about like performance? Like if ketosis is supposed to be like this, you know, starvation state uh, response to starvation and stress, then how can it possibly improve your performance if you're like, you know, starved? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I love to unpack this a little bit more because I think that uh, it it deserves a little bit more attention. Um, 
And I think it's not well articulated in the low carb community where I think there's a lot of, let's say fanatics or uh, proponents of low carb who I think over claim the benefits of low carb for competition. Right. Right. So is glucose terrible? And I think it's just because like, I think, and, and I think the, the question and the answer is like, really, it's, it's a tool, just like ketones are a tool, right? Like there's no evil molecule or food that exists. It's about the dose and the use case. And clearly glucose is a very powerful substrate for anaerobic uh, performance. Um, so when people talk about keto for performance, I, I really have to drill down into, okay, what is the sport that you're competing in and what is the event you're competing in and what stage of training are you competing in? And if you talk to the most elite athletes, the most elite performers, just like there is training blocks of physical exercises that you evolve for peaking at a specific event, people also uh, have nutritional blocks that evolve against the training to peak at the event. Yeah. Now, what is keto good for? Keto is definitely good for boosting fat oxidation and fat mobilization rates, right? If you don't eat any car, like if you start, if you just start fasting, you're going to upregulate all of your fat mobilization, fat oxidation enzymes. You're going to get better at being a fat burner. Um, and that is of use for a lot of people in pre-season type training to build up a stronger aerobic base. But as you get closer and closer to competition, um, especially during competition, you want to be fueled with every single substrate, yeah. right? So being in ketosis, being low carb is, a, is great for adaptation, which means it's like you're training and mm. building up adaptation but it's not necessarily optimal for performance day, right? right. And I think that's and another way to think about it is that you definitely want to be like lifting weights, but you don't want to be doing a PR bench right. press before you do like your Olympic, I don't know, powerlifting thing the next day. And the same thing with thinking about nutrition. Use low carb as a part of the strategy, but don't just say, oh, low carb is the best thing ever. So mm -hmm. I'm gonna just be low carb forever. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's a little bit of the nuance. Now, so I think one, that, that's one layer to think about it. And then the second layer to think about it is that uh, there, I would say that even if you are low carb and eat a lot of fat, uh, a, a lot of these athletes, especially, you know, even if you talk to Zach Bitter, right, who set the 100 mile world record and all, all like very, very insane endurance uh, accomplishments, he will have some berries or honey, a little bit of glucose during the competition days. Like he'll train pretty zero carb, but during competition days, we'll add a little bit of carbohydrate in, which I think exactly makes sense, right? Like on race day, on competition day, you actually want some, you just want yeah. to have easy access to fueling. Mm -hmm. um, so basically I think the point is use keto as an adaptation tool, but for competition day, have full availability of substrate. Now, don't go overboard, right? If you're always over, uh, overboard on substrate, then you reduce your adaptation. So I think that's kind of the art and, yeah. and the science of, of high performance. You're, bal yeah. you're balancing the edge of adaptation and recovery, adaptation and recovery, adaptation and recovery, and then fuel with everything, get all the tools out, 
for competition day. Mm-hmm. So um, hopefully that just helps answer some of the misconceptions out there. Cause I think that uh, some people are like, Oh, keto is awesome. Like, yeah, go into your marathon fasted. It's like, no, like <laughs> don't fast before your marathon. Right. Like unless you're doing that for training, but you're, you're expecting to like run up, you know, your big race day uh, you're going to feel fat because <laughs> right. you're not going to be able to perform your best. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, you're referring to like this uh, metabolic flexibility that uh, you use keto to build up your ability to uh, burn fat at a greater rate, uh, but you're, you shouldn't like uh, neglect the carbs either because they also have like a huge performance boosting effect, uh, uh, primarily for like anaerobic sports and strength sports, but also, like you said, Zach Peter, he eats some uh, carbs for his uh, greater uh, races or uh, competition. So yeah, like uh, you, you can just kind of maybe the kind of idea that you train low and uh, and you like race high or something <laughs> that you you go you do train yourself when you are in ketosis to build up your fat burning engine and also get the other benefits of uh, ketosis, which I think you mentioned like these uh, better recovery. Uh, but when it's like game time, uh, when it's the show time, then you actually, yeah, you just uh, throw everything that you have <laughs> into the kitchen sink, so to say, so they get the most uh, performance benefits, especially from this uh, glycogen uh, resynthesis and uh, increased uh, this uh, explosiveness. Yep, exactly. And yeah, I've talked to some athletes who like don't get that. And I'm like, I'm like I have to like literally sit them down and be like, okay, uh, <laughs> no, don't, don't mess yourself up. Like, like right. it, don't overcomplicate it. Yeah, yeah. I, I usually like I'm not an, like an athlete, but I do uh, like I train uh, quite frequently. And uh, even if I, uh, yeah, like even even for regular people who are just exercising for health, uh, I would also recommend doing this sort of a cyclical metabolic flexibility approach as a way to you know get the best of both worlds and to not uh, you know lose your glucose tolerance because it is true that. Like from my own past experiences, um, if I've done keto for let's say a few months uh, for strict, and then I like accidentally eat some carbs or, or deliberately eat some carbs, then I'll feel awful just because I haven't been used to bur- burning those carbs. And I get like this slightly higher blood sugar after eating those carbs because my body is like not, it's basically insulin resistant to a certain extent. And I haven't been able to uh, rebuild that carb burning engine yet. Whereas if I were to keep those carbs in my diet, like, uh, within the week uh, or, you know, on a more regular basis, then I would, uh, I would, I wouldn't see that negative effect. I wouldn't see this uh, bonking and I would see like this uh, crash and uh, high blood sugar because the body maintains the metabolic flexibility. So yeah, it's yeah. a, it's a good idea to always keep them, keep those things uh, in a cyclical manner. Yep. And I think that's the goal that we should all be uh, talking more about. I feel like the school of thought has been so bifurcated where it's like keto, keto nerds. And then like, <laughs> standard American diet nerds, right? Like calories in, calories out nerds. And like, nerds. <laughs> I, I think, right. And it's just like, and, and it's, it's like very, like very argumentative on Twitter. I'm sure you, you kind of see all the social posts and people just hating each other on social media about nutrition. But I think you're spot on there where it feels like the people that are, have the most experience, both experimenting with themselves, talking to real people, and then also being up to speed on literature, and I feel like we're in that category, but not to like overly pat ourselves on the back. But I feel like I don't care. I just want something that works. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not getting paid right. off of some theory and like, I'm going to get tenure or some professorship. 
because like this is my theory and it has to, I have to prove and debate people to win in some academic nerd competition. Like I think I just want to feel good and, and live longer and perform well and share the, that insight with people that think like-mindedly. So I think when people ask me about my diet, I, I, I very much have been, I, I think the enlightened approach is that it has to vary on your activity load. Yeah. So like when I'm not exercising, I eat very little carbohydrate, but what if I'm like doing a Murph a day or I'm just like cranking out activity, I'll dial up my carb intake one, because I feel like my workout is better Two, It's better for recovery. But then three, because I'm metabolically flexible, I will get back into ketosis very, very quickly the next day. Right. Mm, like I, yeah. I, I will just be able to uh, dispose of glucose. My, my glucose comes down quite low quickly. I have a low facet insulin, low C-reactive protein markers. And it's like, I think that's what we're supposed to ideally be where you can dispose and utilize any substrate coming in and you yes. don't overutilize anything. And I think that's just, I think a missing nuance, which I feel like is like kind of in politics, right? It's like you're either left or right. If we talk about the middle, it's like, no, like right. no one knows what to do with you. And yeah. I would say that like, I would consider myself a part of like the low carb community because I think we need, we need to fight like all the crazy carb consumption. So like I'm definitely more in line with that school of thought because I think we're in general over consuming, over consuming carbohydrate, but like, let, let's not make the same fallacy of just now being low carb fanatics. Like there yeah. is a role for carbohydrate for specific use cases. Yeah. Um, let's just be thoughtful of what those use cases are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. And uh, I also like to look at it that, uh, you know, the more intense exercise I do, like, uh, and uh, yeah, if I work out, then my carb tolerance, my carb limit is also higher. And like you said, you can all, all you can even stay in ketosis by the next day if you consume like uh, a certain amount of carbs that fits your activity level, so to say. So that if you if you if you have depleted your glycogen stores before uh, or before eating, and uh, then uh, you you can essentially shovel those carbs into those uh, muscle cells and uh, go back into ketosis by the next day without really affecting your uh, overall like health or uh, these other you're not going to you know develop diabetes overnight if you uh, eat you know a certain amount of carbs yeah and and that should be the goal right again it's metabolic flexibility like if you just develop diabetes one day because you accidentally ate a birthday cake like <laughs> that's not that's not optimal performance or longevity right like one yeah. should not be that brittle on either side of macronutrients so um so I, I think to me, it's like, again, know where you're at. If I were overweight, obese, or had type two diabetes, I would not be, I, I would be much more strict on carbohydrate because yeah. that is the poison that had caused me to become obese into this insulin resistance in the first place. So yes. I would not, I, so I think it's like, I think both, you know, you know, I, I know you're fit and it's like, okay, we, we have done the hard work or born genetically, or just didn't have the ha bad habits to like get into a bad state. So we have a little bit more leeway, right? It's just like, if you are a millionaire, you can do some stupid stuff with money that other people can't get away with, right? Not right. to compare us to millionaires or, or whatnot, but just to give an analogy. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I think the same thing with metabolic flexibility. I think you have more leeway as you get out of a deficient state or a diseased state. But if I have a, a form of cancer or neurological condition that uh, getting out of glycolysis would be beneficial for, I would be a, I would be a 
you know, a, a monk about it. Yes. And I, I, I've, and I think you both, you and I, just in terms of experimentation, we have been monks about, you know, doing hardcore carnivore, hardcore keto right. for months and we, you know, at a time. And I think it's very, very palatable. Um, but then I think as I got more sophisticated with my understanding of ketosis, of metabolism, of nutrition, and what my overall goals were, where I think it's much more aligned with metabolic flexibility and optimal performance versus just sticking to just less than yeah. 10 grams of carbs a day. Yeah. Uh, then you start understanding the tools, the levers, the frameworks of how everything comes together versus just sticking to some random uh, rule, like only less than 20 grams of carbs a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, those uh, numbers, they're not gonna, they're always like very subjective and they're not gonna be exactly 10 grams for everyone. So it's all varies between uh, individuals. Mm. Exactly. But uh, let's talk about like the recovery aspect of ketones. Um, how can they affect like, you know, recovery and uh, in so doing, like if you recover better, you can also like train more frequently and you can like especially improve your skills and just uh, increase your performance as a result of as well. Yeah, so there's been really interesting data both on ketogenic diet as well as exogenous ketones on quicker recovery. So I think just from a, from a science perspective, there was, a, again, a, again, coming out of the uh, Hezbollah's group in, in Belgium, there was a three-week overreaching protocol that mimicked the Tour de France routine. So two, three cycling workouts a day for three weeks in a row. And this was on wow. healthy, uh, healthy trained cyclists. Um, and essentially, uh, ketones with carbohydrate and protein versus isocaloric carbohydrate protein as recovery, uh, the group with ketones was able to improve work output or work volume by 15% by the end of the three weeks and, and be 5% faster on the time trial at the end of three weeks, which was very, very interesting. So um, one thing that just in terms of the physiology that we've seen is that ketones itself don't seem to trigger the mTOR pathway. In fact, mm. a lot of people would say fast and eat a ketogenic diet to reduce mTOR activation. But interestingly, uh, we saw increased mTOR activation if you combine ketones with carbohydrate and protein. And okay. you actually want that in a recovery context where you want to be rebuilding muscle more quickly. Uh, and I think there's another nuanced area uh, to, to maybe explore a little bit deeper, which is this whole mTOR thing, right? And I think within the longevity space, mTOR has been a little bit of demonized where it's like mTOR is the muscle protein uh, path, synthesis pathway. You don't want overgrowth. And if you want to have longevity, you want to like inhibit mTOR as much as possible. Now, well, I think that generally, <laughs> but, but, but I think it's like, that that's generally fine, right? Because you don't want to like just go cancerous and have uncontrolled growth. But on the other hand, if you're looking for healthy functional living tissue, you want mTOR to be activated in the active muscle groups. And I think that's where tissue specificity is, again, under-discussed in the literature, where it's like, yeah. I think people talk about autophagy as like, oh, it's on or off, right? And, and you talk a lot about autophagy, but it's, as you know, it's, autophagy is one, it's not, like, it, there's no good way to measure it. And it's, autophagy yeah. always kind of happens, right? It's like, you're right. always kind of, uh, he, always healing. It's just a matter of do you upregulate more of those pathways or not? And it also depends on the organ or tissue, right? Like, like the brain has a much slower autophagy process than your skin, for example. 
So each of the organs, uh, in each of the tissues, you want to think about individually. So now specifically for mTOR, you actually want to be activating mTOR in the right muscle groups as after you, after you uh, have an exercise bout, you actually want to be recovering. So it's very interesting to see that ketone seems to be this uh, like almost additive component that, that triggers uh, some of these longevity pathways depending on the context. Um, and I think it makes a lot of sense evolutionary because ketones are, are essentially an anti-catabolic uh, signaling molecule because in, in, in evolutionary biology, when you're fasted or when you have ketones in your, in your bloodstream, you want to be preserving muscle tissue. You want to be preserving glucose, right? Because yes. in normal physiology, you're, you're starving. So your body's <laughs> like, okay, we got to preserve muscle, preserve right. all, all the good stuff. So it's interesting that when you have ketones with the presence of protein and carbohydrate as a recovery protocol, then you just accelerate the preservation or anti-catabolic effects. So mm. I think that's what we're seeing uh, yeah. in, in, in that Hezbollah study. Uh, uh, I want to ask, like, uh, you, but uh, like you know, carbs and protein will raise mTOR alone by themselves as well, even without the ketones. So like, how, correct? Did they? How did they? Like, did the ketones have like an additional elevation of correct. mTOR? Or right? Yes. Per, okay. Oh, that's yes, so exactly. So isocaloric, uh, the, the control was an isocaloric, just protein carbohydrate. Okay. And the intervention arm was same amount of calories, but ketones in the mix. Gotcha. Yeah. So it was okay. an additive synergistic boost of mTOR. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah, that makes sense uh, because like ketones themselves are, they still have like uh, some calories and they do, uh, you know, provide energy to the body. So it kind of makes sense that you have like additional energy load. Uh, that will then uh, promote the like recovery and the growth and it is true that you do need to kind of recover if you are coming from like a workout or if you're like trying to heal yep yeah so i think that's like some, some of the i think just kind of the exciting like just further evolution of our understanding of ketosis so so i think my sense is that uh, the recovery use cases of ketones will be much more robust much more interesting than the pre-acute fuel for ketones. Right. So I think that um, if you actually look at the oxidation rates of ketones, it's a very small percentage of overall, overall fuel balance, right? Fat and glucose is still like the majority of what's being burned, even if you have like three plus millimole ketones in your body. Uh, it's like sub 10%, it's about 10%, like five to 10% is ketone burning, which is substantial, which could uh, boost acute uh, work uh, sort of pre-bout performance, right? Like it's not trivial, um, but I think just the data I've seen in terms of the recovery side, that seems so much more robust uh, than, okay, we're gonna just add a 10% incremental different mix of your, your hybrid engine with something that's got some metabolic advantage with, uh, right, with like the improved uh, Delta, like Gibbs free energy ratio in, in, in the Krebs cycle. Uh, but I think that's, it, it, I'm, I, it's, it's, it's been unclear to see how that's measured. Is, is that meaningful at the, like, at, at the organ or tissue level? It might, be, uh, it might be measurable and useful at the mitochondrial biochemical level, but does that translate to the uh, actual measurable performance output level? I think that's more of an open question, right? And I think that's why you see some studies with exogenous ketones have null results 
some have positive results. And I think it's the overall balance. And I think the, the sodium bicarbonate paper, the dosing differences, if you're fasted or fed before workout, those seem to be much more dominant uh, of variables than just the ketones themselves. Mm-hmm. And would you think that uh, like working out, let, let's say if, even if you don't uh, like take uh, additional exogenous ketones, would you say like working out in a state of ketosis or like or on a ketogenic diet would also be better for recovery? Yeah, so I think that's so I would so I would say that I'm not sure if that's this has been studied in RCT, but there's definitely good I would say case study and anecdotal discussion that and again you take from what you will but when I talk to elite athletes that are very dialed into their performance I, I take their quote unquote anecdote more you know relatively seriously because I, I, I think I think one they're not they're not trying to lie to me unless I have no reason to believe they're lying to me and two I think they're like very very astute in terms of how their body functions right like these are like the world's best athletes at their job which is like understanding their body um and and that seems to be one of the uh discussion points which is that on a ketogenic diet people feel like they recover more quickly uh and i think that either could one be due to reduced inflammation as well as more of the anti-catabolic effects of being in ketosis but two it also could be and i think the devil's advocates say could say that like you just aren't working hard enough right because maybe you just don't work out hard enough because you're in keto and you're weaker so i think um it's a potential mix of the two um yeah but and I think again it depends on the the the, the cycle in which you're training. Uh, I think end of the day, I think training fasted, training in ketosis is very beneficial for adaptation purposes, right? Training that metabolic flexibility, upregulating your fat oxidation rates. Um, but do I do that? The, the only thing I train. And it's like, no, you don't only train to do your PR. You don't only, you don't only do one rep maxes for when you do weightlifting. So mm-hmm. why would you only train fasted? It's the same question. It's the same thing. Train your, you know, eight set reps or eight rep sets, train your one rep max, but just, and, 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 and likewise train your nutrition the same way. Train fasted, train fed, train in a couple of different states to optimize your protocol for competition day. Or for yeah. other sports like Tour de France or for military, it's like there's no there's no there's no friggin' training day, right? Yeah. I think that's like an interesting sub conversation, which is that like for those types of things, like you're deployed for eight months, so you're not trying to peak for one day. Like it's not like a, like the bad guy is only gonna be there on Tuesday, so we gotta just get super ramped up and peak up on Tuesday. It's like all right, we're 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 in the we're down range. Like we need to just be on point for eight eight months straight. So I think yeah. that's where I think a lot of the context and nuance becomes especially important. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I actually think that uh, that field, like, you know, first responders, military people, and these, like, extreme jobs, uh, I think that stressful job, like, I think that that, does, that will be, like, more, even more practical uh, to use, like, uh, ketosis and uh, ketogenic diets and ketone esters, uh, because, like... Uh, there you don't necessarily need to be you know Usain Bolt <laughs> you don't need to be Usain Bolt and uh, be actually like the one percent of the world in terms of performance uh, you need to be just you know good enough and be fit and uh, function well but uh, you know you can leverage the other benefits of ketones uh, when you are doing your job such as you know reduced inflammation 
uh, also like reduced neuronal stress, uh, better cognition, uh, just more focus uh, and uh, better, better recovery, so to say. So you can get like the, all the other benefits of ketosis and ketones that aren't necessarily like physical performance, but you get all the other um, additional uh, traits uh, that I think uh, would enable you to do your job better and also stay healthier in so doing. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that the field is just getting smarter, right? Because I think that, um, I, I, I mean, I think this is the reflection of, I would say, just the general culture of mod, modern civilization, where I think the headlines are just black and white, but the reality is a bunch of gray. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and and it's like let's just again it's not say we give up it's just like okay let's just be thoughtful be nuanced when we talk about certain things uh, understand the full context before we start making prescriptions to people mm -hmm. yeah absolutely uh but let's talk about you know there's a difference between uh, ketone salts and ketones as well can you maybe go through some of the main differences yeah um within uh when we talk about, you know, quote unquote ketones, uh, I would say like the first main way to categorize is uh, ketogenesis, endogenous ketosis, right? The ketones that your liver makes normally when there's some carbohydrate restriction. And then there's exogenous ketones. And you describe two of the main categories. Uh, one category is ketone salts and another big category is ketone esters. So what are ketone salts? Uh, and so ketones, again, there are three main biological ketone bodies that we all talk about, beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone. Acetone is more of a waste product, although there's been some research suggesting that it's a signaling molecule, but the two main uh, ketone bodies is beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. Uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate is a little bit more stable. That's what the liver produces uh, directly, but uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate needs to be converted into acetoacetate and acetoacetate turns into acetoCoA and then that, that goes into the Krebs cycle. So you have to go through, BHB needs to go to acetoacetate before it can be utilized as, uh, as, a, as, as a metabolic substrate. So these are just molecules, right? Like ketones, like any other organic molecule are just molecules and you can bind them to other molecules. So ketone salts, are, are basically binding a salt, which can be a mineral, like basically a positive cation. So a sodium, a calcium, magnesium, bound to a beta-hydroxybutyric acid uh, without so basically BHB. So it's like one part sodium, one part beta-hydroxybutyrate. And that's like a very common ketone salt. Uh, so that's, basically what ketone salts are basically a mineral plus a ketone body uh, ketone esters are another way to create a molecule of exogenous ketones and uh, as the ester definition implies uh, an ester is essentially a type of a organic molecule that has a oxygen bond in the middle so basically oxygen with two double bonds to two organic molecules is the general form of what an ester is so you can esterify beta-hydroxybutyrate or acetoacetate to a different molecule to create a ketone ester. So for example, uh, you can esterify beta-hydroxybutyrate to butane diol to make a ketone monoester that's been studied widely. 
that uh, molecule came out of a DARPA program uh, in, in the early 2000s. Uh, or you can uh, look at acetoacetate uh, esterified with butene dial for an acetoacetate diester. So there's a number of these compounds and I, and I know that a lot of different research groups and scientists are working and exploring the different impacts of all of these different types of molecules. Um, and the way I think about it is that there will just be like a huge number of exogenous ketones, just like there's a huge number of amino acids or uh, carbohydrate drinks or protein drinks. There's going to be just different, like different ways, different advantages and disadvantages of each type of exogenous ketone molecule. But hopefully that helps like, describe some of the universe there. Uh, maybe that's a little bit technical, but I think the, like, the more practical way to understand it is that ketone salts tend to be cheaper, uh, in, 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 especially because like, the mineral half is, uh, one, it's just easier to synthesize like, salts versus esters. Uh, the disadvantage is that you get a lot of mineral load when you, when you yeah. have a ketone salt product, right? If you look at the label, it's just like 300% like sodium in yeah. like a dose. Um, and there's a, you know, discussion debate whether that's, you know, is that super bad or not bad? I mean, that's a kind of a can of worms. Um, but, but I, I, I think it still stands that like, you don't necessarily need to have to tie so much sodium into your exogenous ketone. Yeah, for sure. Product. Uh, right. So, so I think that would be the main difference where esters might have a little bit more advantage because, uh, you get a little bit more of the ketones than like salt. Yeah, and uh, the salts tend to not be as effective uh, as well. So they don't raise your ketones uh, as much as uh, esters. Yep. Uh, and uh, exactly. What exactly. what would you like say? Uh, like how, <laughs> what level of ketosis uh, do you need to reach to see like some benefits uh, in terms of let's say maybe like anti-inflammatory effects or uh, like some performance effects? Yeah, I think that's that's I would say really an open research question. Um, so I would say that potentially, I think the ergogenic effects, the performance effects likely need to be high, right? Likely need to be three millimole plus for ergogenic or like aerobic enhancement. Uh, that might be moderated down more if you have sodium bicarbonate, right? Based on the Hezbollah research. Um, but I think for a lot of the signaling effects, anti-inflammation effects, uh, the cardiovascular disease risk effects. A lot of the papers I've seen that show statistically significant improvement only have about 1.0 millimole ketones. So, uh, I, again, so I think it depends on the effect. My speculation is that for more of the metabolic signaling, for more of the recovery benefits, you might need just about 1.0 millimole ketones. Right. Whereas potentially for ergogenic uh, pre-workout type use cases, yeah, maybe you need three or at least two millimole and upwards. Yeah, and it makes sense as well because like you can't really stay in the state of, you know, three and above uh, for too long because you do feel like slightly nausea and uh, it is not like uh, as uh, subtle as uh, like just one or two millimoles uh, you know, per liter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't usually see any decrements if I'm super high in ketones. Um, 
I, I haven't personally experienced that, but yeah, I mean, I think as you're, yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, have you, did, have you felt like nauseous when you're like holding it? Like, I don't know, three millimole ketones. Um, yeah. Like, uh, but I was also like, if I do, then I may be like fasting as well at the same time, like, uh, you know, maybe around a three day fast, I would be like 3.5 yeah. or uh, 3.7 or something. And I do feel like slightly uh, nausea uh, every once in a while. Not, not always, but it may be also because of the fasting. So. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that might, yeah. So I think that might be more on the fasting side versus the ketones themselves. But right. I mean, I think it's just like definitely just an edge case scenario where not a lot of people have studied like long fasts or, and or exogenous ketones at the same time. Hmm. <laughs> One interesting question I would have is like, um, you know, if you have like very high levels of ketosis, like you, tr you drink the ketone ester and you're on your way to the gym and, uh, you know, like the police uh, pulls you over and you take the uh, alcohol breath test, uh, <laughs> will you like register, you know, alcohol in your breath uh, as a result of that? Because they are like, you know, some acetone and those things, they have like this uh, metallic taste and uh, alcohol as well. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a funny question because I've, so I'm not an expert in terms of what ethanol detection is. So I know a lot of breath meters that people sell for measuring ketones measures acetone. So if blood alcohol measuring devices are also measuring acetone, that's super interesting. And so I don't actually know what they're detecting. It might be acetone. Um, so if that is the case, I've actually read an article where uh, there was like a flight attendant or a pilot that actually got like charged for drinking on a job because <laughs> he blew acetone and he said he was on keto. So like, this is not like theoretical. Yeah. I, it's actually been, it's actually been reported in, in news. Um, so, uh, but to answer the question di to, to your question here. So what we've seen with the pharmacokinetics with acetone for exogenous ketones, it looks different than endogenous ketosis. So I think with endogenous ketosis, you see a pretty linear spike in acetone with, uh, as you get deeper and deeper into ketosis. Um, because of, uh, you just drinking a huge bolus of beta hydroxybutyrate through an exogenous ketone drink, it seems like the acetone is that that increase in acetone is much more mild and takes much longer. Okay. So, um, so in that sense, like when I've done breath meter work with after drinking uh, ketones, it's uh, I'm not like triggering super deep ketosis, even though my blood is showing very deep ketosis. So okay. from a breath, so so I think like the pro tip is that breath is definitely not a direct correlate to blood and it especially diverges when you do exogenous ketones. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, good to know that I didn't know that there's a difference between the, how fast it kind of hits your breath, which is, I, I would imagine like the, somewhat of a different uh, response, but it's maybe the way, maybe it's like it had to do with like some of the priorities that the body uses to burn it, so to say. So it first goes into the blood or is used as an energy molecule uh, as opposed to being excreted through uh, the breath. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. What, what are some other ways you can maybe couple uh, some other ways to like maybe optimize your, um, you know, uh, ketosis or metabolic flexibility with for, uh, for performance? Um, I think, uh, 
One thing that I want to do more research on is dig more into the sodium bicarbonate literature. Uh, I, I, there was some uh, work, I believe, in in vitro liver cells showing that uh, sodium bicarbonate boosted endogenous ketogenesis, which is kind of interesting, right? Interesting, so, like, yeah. if you are recommending people to like get more keto adapted. You have a little bit of baking soda, and that helps people create more endogenous ketones. Um, that's like an interesting area. Like I haven't experimented too much with baking soda. I think the downside is that you get a lot of GI distress if you just like yeah. people get can have upset stomach quite easily on bike uh, baking soda. That's been an interesting area. Um, some other interesting areas include, uh, yeah, just like stacking. Uh, different uh things together within the, within the space because i think that just like how uh being a ketosis or just beta hydroxybutyrate it's one molecule it feels like just just with the the complexity of human systems uh one intervention is likely can be synergized or improved or enhanced with other interventions right so i think it's like yeah thinking through and coming up with different combinations of whether that's just on the recovery side with, I don't know, collagen or on the performance side with, I don't know, caffeine or, or some other obvious things. I think those are kind of interesting areas to explore. Mm. Yeah. Um, totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Like, do you, do you plan on, uh, you know, uh, widening your, uh, you know, uh, products uh, for HVMN or are you going to stick to mostly just ketones? Yeah, I think we're always uh, exploring. I mean, we're going to be launching a new product in November, and that will be very much in line with the ketogenic diet area. But I think, um, uh, like, I think our, our kind of, I think the mandate for HVMN is really looking at the overall metabolic health crisis in the world and, like, let's, have, let's offer products that, that, that can address the full spectrum. Right. I, I right. see on one hand supporting endogenous ketosis as valuable. And on the other hand, exogenous ketosis can be very valuable. And it's like finding the best tools for the job across that spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely a lot of uh, more research needs to be done and uh, exciting times uh, once we get that research done. Yeah. And I think it's, it's also been fun like, going from endogenous to exogenous, going from therapeutic to performance enhancement. So I think it's been just as fun talking to elite athletes as it's talking to researchers looking at Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, diabetes. And uh, I think that's what just, you know, keeps me just entertained. <laughs> if that's like the, that might be too flippant of a word, but that keeps me excited and passionate, passionate about like what I do every single day. Cause it's just, it just like, it just following my curiosity. Yeah. And so it's not really even work. And I think if I can just keep having fun and just keep being curious, then uh, nothing can stop us. Right. And I think that's, uh, yeah. that's like, I think the, the place and position in life that we all want to aspire to where uh, we're just having a good old time, like living <laughs> our very, very short lives. Yeah. 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 Trying to be as uh, fast and strong as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's been great talking with you, uh, uh, but uh, before I ask my last question, where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, I'm, I'm 
uh, pretty active on both Twitter and Instagram. My personal handles are uh, at Jeffrey Wu, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-W-O-O. And uh, uh, so talk to me there. And then my company is at HVMN. So four letters, Health Via Modern Nutrition, HVMN. We own all the handles for that as well, uh, as well as HVMN.com. So check us out on, on that. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or habit you wish you adopted sooner? Hmm. Man, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Because I, I think uh, I wish I treated uh, like sport more seriously as a kid. And, 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 and what I mean by that is that I think I grew up a science math nerd. So I was like just good at taking tests and good at doing science fairs and math competitions. And I always saw that sport was like an extracurricular activity to kind of get into a good college. So it was kind of like, just like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be a professional tennis player. So eh, whatever, right? Like, let's just focus on like uh, getting really good grades and then playing some video games. Uh, and then you got to do a little bit of sport to get to put on my college application. Right. And what I regret now after being a little bit more mature and then meeting these great athletes and great performers is that um, I think the biggest delta between a normal fit hobbyist and a professional athlete is that they freaking were serious about it from a very young age and put in reps. And I don't think, and I think a lot of us put in decent hours at the gym. Like, I think probably all of our listeners, you know, it's like, you're probably inclined to health and wellness. So you probably go to the gym a few times a day or a few times a week, if not like, you know, you do try, you try to be active. But I think my biggest regret is that I didn't treat those time at that, those hours with full uh, presence, full earnest effort. Mm. And I feel like if you were able to have like just true earnest effort from when you were seven and you were just like, you build up hand-eye coordination, build up just better muscle memory, you build up better muscle strength, you got better flexibility. I think that compounds so much. And I feel like I'm just starting to like treat and, and have like the education and awareness to do it a little bit more seriously. And I would say that I'm, you know, reasonably both fit now I wish I had that same diligence as a kid. Right. And it's like, like, I'm never going to be, and, and it's like, you probably to, to be like a physics genius, you gotta be just like earnestly studying math when you're seven. Right. Like, right. it's like, if you're, you're in your thirties, you just want to be like Einstein and prove a theory of everything probably too late. Right. It's just like, <laughs> maybe not PC to say, but your brain is probably too formed. You have, you have too much, like you didn't like tap into the, uh, the, the, the flexibility of your brain when you were a child, you know, the most uh, neuron flexibility. Um, mm. So if that is a, a reg so I guess that's like the regret, but also just like, it's better to start today than later. So I would like, so I think that one of the things that I have been thinking a lot about is okay, cool. How do I just make sure that if I'm going to invest, you know, an hour a day or, you know, an hour, three, five times a week to do something physical, really get good effort, good value of those hours, not just ship it at the gym and do like 20 pull-ups or whatever, 20 push-ups while listening to, you know, 
watching a YouTube video, which I think a lot of people at the gym do. Right. Yeah, that's a good advice. So it's like, it's not necessarily the amount of reps you do, but it's more like the quality of the reps that you do that matters. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I think you put in quite succinctly there. Yeah. I think it's like, I wish I put better quality into my early childhood athletic my athleticism. Yeah. Well, it's uh, never too late to uh, keep going. Or <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. It was good talking with you. And uh, yeah, let's stay in touch and uh, looking forward to your future work. Cool. All right. Talk soon, Sim.